The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. of the Talking Space Podcast. I am Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight are Mark Raderman. Welcome, Mark. Hello, Sawyer, and uh, looking forward to tonight. I think we all are. Welcome also, Gina Herlihy. Hey, thanks, Sawyer. This is going to be a very interesting show tonight. Oh, yes. And unfortunately, Gene McCulka is currently under the weather and is unable to join us tonight, but we do wish him a speedy recovery and all the best. Now, Mark, I believe we do have somebody else with us tonight that's a very special guest, and will you please introduce them? He's got quite a a lot of experiences to talk with us about. The time that we've got tonight is probably just going to scratch the surface. And as a change from what you might expect, we'll be talking about space, but to get there, we have to spend some time on good old planet Earth. And in his own words from his blog, he's got a professional interest spanning physical Earth and planetary sciences, Interested in plate tectonics, earthquakes, volcanoes, impacts, the interior of terrestrial planets. Also like space policy, and I have a tough time with that one sometimes. And hopes to help shape the government's science goals and priorities. Common theme of his interest is a belief that science should improve society. Amen to that. And that's why he's particularly passionate about disaster, uh, natural disaster mitigation using space technologies. And I'm really curious to hear a little bit more about that as we go. He thinks we have an obligation to excite the next generation about science. So from Iwa Beach, Hawaii, I'd like to welcome a a geophysicist, crew member of FMARS 2009, the commander of MDRS Crew 89, and an astronaut for hire, Brian Shiro. Brian, welcome to Talkin' Space. Hi, Mark. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, you currently are working for good old Uncle Sam, NOAA, at the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center. And uh, you certainly had some air time there. I, I saw a few weeks ago with the earthquake, I believe it was off the coast of Chile, that uh, you put in, I know it was over a day solid at the warning center, but uh, how's, how do you like that? How long have you been there and how did, how did you stumble into that line of work? That's right, Mark. The, the Chile earthquake and tsunami uh, recently was quite an exciting event. And um, definitely put all of us here through the, through the paces, and um, it's a good end-to-end test of the tsunami warning system. And, um, you know, it's one of the most exciting parts about the job when these things happen, because you have to not only put your science knowledge to work and your operational knowledge of, of the uh, monitoring system, but you, you have to put on your, your public relations cap, and you speak with the news media and, and concerned citizens. And, and uh, as you alluded to, I was doing a lot of interviews um, for this particular event, and yeah, it, it did get quite tiring. And I've, I've been at this job now about four and a half years, it'll be five years this summer. 
Well, Brian, when you started there, were you doing much the same job that you are now, or is there a progression through the the field? Because I, you know, my experience with NOAA is with the National Weather Service and local local forecast office, and uh, I've I've seen how they work for years around places I've worked, but uh, uh, this has got to be quite different. It's different, yet it has a lot of similarities. We're part of the National Weather Service too, and. But the Tsunami Warning Centers, there are only two of them, are, are kind of like the estranged cousins of the National Weather Service because we don't really fit the mold of most forecast offices um, since we don't deal with weather. We um, deal with uh, earthquakes and tsunamis. And, um, but uh, we do share some similarities in that we use the same infrastructure and communication pathways and, and the same uh, management structure as well. Um, you know, so if you're familiar with the organization, you know, there are, are similarities. And uh, you asked about how the job might have changed over time. And one thing that's interesting about this job is that everyone who works here, and there are 12 scientists here, and uh, we work rotating shift schedules to, to cover 24-7, we, we all do pretty much the same primary job, and that's man the warning center, make sure it operates, make sure it's functional and you know, fix things when they break. And it's kind of like, uh, it's good operational experience. And one of the things that I said on one of my blog posts last year, called uh, I think it was called the Tsunami Kind of Month, was uh, I think this is good work experience uh, for astronaut hopefuls because one of the things I hear over and over again um, by speaking with, with people in the know and in the astronaut hopeful world is uh, NASA wants people with operational experience. And, you know, they, they, by that they mean people who fly fly fighter jets or, or, or manned submarines, but, but I think operating a technical system like this is, is also comparable. Um, the, the job involves a lot of things, but uh, primarily it's, it's keeping you know, warning center running. How about uh, space-based assets? Is there anything to help you there? In, in terms of the tsunami problem, uh, not too much today, and um, there's some interesting possibilities on the horizon. Um, we, of course, do use satellite communications quite heavily. Um, the remote field sites, a lot of them give us the data in real time via satellite, but uh, that's about the extent of space um, usage that right now. We don't do any uh, optical remote sensing, for example. Uh, in the future, there's a lot of interesting possibilities for tsunami warning from, from space if you had the right satellites up there. You know, if you had a constellation up there that could view pretty much any place in the world at any time, you you could monitor for sea level. You did that with radio altimetry, for example. Um, the, the JSON instrument on the Topex Poseidon satellite did that back in 2004 during the Great Indian Ocean tsunami. It showed that, yes, you can actually see a tsunami from space. So it is possible, although it's probably only going to work for really big tsunamis, not the small ones. And for that, you have to get a little more creative. And, and there, there are possibilities that use very sensitive measurements of the time delay of signals to GPS satellites. That, that's a promising new technique. There's also some promising new research about how earthquakes and tsunamis could affect the Earth's ionosphere. And it's, what happens is, is as the mass moves in the Earth, where the mass of the ocean moves in the tsunami, it actually couples to the atmosphere and makes the atmosphere move. That, in turn, couples to the ionosphere. And as you know, the ionosphere has a lot of charged particles in there that move around, and that is detectable. And, and so if you can get a good take on what the background signal is supposed to be in the ionosphere. How far ahead. in advance can you actually predict these, and how accurate can you get? 
Well, today we can't predict when it's going to happen at all, so we, we can't do that at all. It's just not possible. It's one of the holy grails in geophysics um, that someday we'll be able to, to predict when earthquakes will happen, and, and in turn tsunamis too. Um, but once they do happen, we, we have made great strides in forecasting um, what the tsunami itself is going to do in the ocean. And, and this capability comes about because we have more capable computers today than we had a generation ago, and in fact, than we had five years ago. So, so the computers really make that possible. We're doing some pretty sophisticated modeling of, of how the tsunami propagates through the ocean and how it's refracted and reflected around all the different obstacles and, and arrives at its destination. Brian, I have actually visited where you work. My husband and I uh, were able to spend part of one of our vacations visiting um, the Tsunami Warming Center right in Hilo. And we actually had a private tour um, with a retired geophysicist, I want to say. He used to work at Exxon, who would have spent all day with us. He was just a wealth of information and explained to us all sorts of, um, unfortunately, disaster scenarios and how... The center works with uh, the coordination of several other centers um, along the Pacific to make sure you have as much, much advanced warning as possible. That was 10 years ago. Um, what is really like the new important technology that you have today that really you may feel as an employee of the center that you couldn't do without that may be fairly new? Well, that's, that's great that you've been here. I didn't know that. So, um, yeah, you've got, got to see how beautiful it is in this part of the world. I, I think 10 years ago compared to today, that the biggest difference has to be the availability of data. And um, back then, digital seismology was, was, was certainly around, but it, it hadn't quite exploded the way it has now. So back then, we wouldn't have had as much data to work with. And, and so that would delay our, our response time. And in fact, we have metrics of our response time that show that, that starting around eh, maybe 2003, 2005-ish, um, we started to get a lot more data and we actually got faster and faster uh, to responding to these events. Uh, but the, the real leap, I think, in our ability happens within really the last three, four years when we've had access to these, these models that I spoke of. And, and the models allow us to, to forecast what the tsunami is going to do across the ocean. And prior to that, all we could say was when we expected the tsunami to rise somewhere. So the time, but not the amplitude. And so because we want to play it safe and be conservative, you would put everyone in a warning or a watch, depending on the case. And that can be unnecessary in some cases because you know, a tsunami doesn't propagate equally in all directions. It has directionality to it. And, and actually, many tsunamis, in fact, travel only along a narrow beam and throughout the ocean, and they don't affect places along the sides very much. And so if you can know ahead of time that the tsunami is going to do that, you can avoid putting places in warning. And that not only saves potential panic, but it also saves money for them. It uh, just makes you more accurate, and uh, everybody wants that. You're one of the few people that uh, I've heard of, the only one I can think, that's been to Mars. But I know that's a different sort of Mars. So why don't you tell us about FMARS and uh, the MDRS? I did this, this little, little Mars mission back when I was in junior high. So Mars has always been an interest of mine, and I was a big fan of the Kim Stanley Robinson books, Red Mars, Green Mars, and Blue Mars. And in fact, I read those when I was in Antarctica. 
and it was kind of, I think, appropriate because they trained for that mission in Antarctica. And, uh, and so Mars has been interested in mine. And, and when I applied to the astronaut program about uh, a year and a half ago, and by the way, that's when I started my blog, was, was about two years ago, and I named it Astronaut for Hire because I was applying to the, the program, and, and the blog focused on that for, for most of its first year of existence. Um, so I, as I had found out, I, in fact, I just found out that I didn't make the cut. I, I made it pretty far to the highly qualified stage. It's about the top 10%. And, you know, then I got cut. And, but I, I put my application into the Mars Society's FMARS um, opportunity. And, and so as the, astro, the NASA astronaut process, selection process was winding down, I, I found out that I had been selected. And I was very happy about this, particularly because all the pieces fell together for me so that I could get the time off work and, and everything was going to work out just right to do it. Because it, it was actually quite a, a, a lengthy time away. I was, I was gone about six weeks total, and um, including uh, a weekend in Colorado before that for training and, and uh, a lot of planning time. But I managed to squeeze it in. And um, it was quite an experience. I mean, imagine going on a chartered plane, island hopping among the, the small islands up in the Canadian North, Canadian Arctic, and you end up on, on the island called uh, Devon Island. And Devon Island is actually the world's largest uninhabited island. It's located about 75 degrees north latitude, and it's uh, well within the Arctic Circle, about, I think it's about 1,000 miles from the North Pole. And this particular site is in an Arctic desert. There's very little moisture. And it's actually almost dead biologically, too, because about 40 million years ago, there was a large impact that happened there. And uh, this impact created a crater called Hawkman Crater. And uh, so not only is it cold and it's, and it's a desert, but it also uh, has this geology that's, that's uh, related to impacts, just like you know, Mars and the Moon have everywhere. And, uh, and there's only microbial life. So it's, it's actually a pretty good analog for Mars. And that's why the Mars Society, as well as NASA, the Canadian Space Agency, have set up bases there for doing Mars analog operations. And so I was at the Mars Society's base, FMARS, which stands for Flashline Mars Arctic Research Station. And we had a crew of six, and we were there for a, a one-month mission. I, I brought two experiments with me, geophysics, of course, and uh, I think that, by the way, geophysics, they're going to bring a geophysicist on, on these planetary missions because geophysics is how you learn about the inside of planets. Anything that you can't see at the surface, anything underground, you need geophysics to, to know about it. That includes looking for resources and water, too. And so what, what I was doing was a, was a seismic experiment and an electromagnetic experiment to look for water. And we also had a UAV. We were flying around and and using that to scout out sites, and, and we did you know, a biomedical study, and um, we did a geology study where we took gypsum and we extracted water from it, which is kind of neat. And of course, lots of EBAs, just with general exploration goals, and uh, just a wonderful experience in a very isolated place. Brian, with the, uh, I didn't realize that your, your Flashline Mars Arctic Research Station duty was for a month. Do you have a general calendar and schedule planned out for that how do you how do you uh keep busy with that much time and and something that i just realized today 
there's got to be an incredible amount of housekeeping involved just in keeping your uh, your facility you know usable you you technically want to stay inside and not overflow into outdoors right right to, to maintain the, the highest fidelity simulation of the, of the mission as we can we, we try to avoid what we call breaking sim or breaking the simulation and that means going outside without the spacesuit but as you alluded to you, the you, that's necessary because you have to keep the place running. And uh, for example, we had to go gather water from the stream. We had to fuel our generators with uh, diesel uh, every day, and a few other maintenance tasks like that that, that we we didn't do in the suits just for the sake of safety. Um, we also, like you said, had a lot of maintenance to do, and um, some of it was related to environmental compliance uh, regulations that that were new that year. And we had to we had to build a sump for our gray water, and we had to build an incinerator for our trash, and that took up several days at the beginning of the mission. And uh, but once we settled into the main mission, you know, we we were pretty good about not breaking the simulation, and like you said, staying inside, um, you know, except for EVAs, in which case we wore the, the you know the uh, the mock spacesuits and went outside and, and did our science. And and one of the things you learn in these kinds of missions. Um, in fact, something that, that Zubrin says in one of his books is on, on Mars, you're going to need Scotties and Spocks. And by that, he means you need engineers and scientists. And, and you, they're, they're the most important ones because you need to troubleshoot problems. And without the engineers, in fact, you wouldn't have a mission. And, and things always break. You always have to replace parts. You always have to get creative with your solutions. For example, our, our rovers, which, which were just uh, ATVs, they were breaking down all the time, and we were trying everything we could think of to get them running. And eventually, we had to take the engines apart and clean the carburetor um, and put it all back, and then they ran okay. And uh, so you have to, to do a lot of troubleshooting in the field. What was it like being with the same group of people in such a small area for 30 days? And do you think it would be tolerable for an entire trip to Mars? I think for 30 days, you can tolerate almost anything. And so a crew of, of almost anybody that you put together for 30 days can, can last. That's one of the things that I learned. Um, and I say that because, we, you know, we, we got along pretty well, but we had our share of, of disagreements. And um, if we had been there longer, it, it probably would have been more of a concern. And one of the, one of the things that ideally would be done with these sorts of studies is they would select crews well in advance and have them train together more than we did because we only met each other for one weekend before the actual mission. And um, so it, it's, it would be better if you actually train together for years ahead of time, you know, like you would imagine in a real mission. In fact, when, when people go to Mars, I, I imagine they will be doing extensive field training together, both on Earth and, and in space and, and on the moon probably before they go to Mars. And uh, so those sorts of pers interpersonal issues will likely be worked out. But, you know, uh, you get to know everybody really well. You get to know how everyone thinks and, and uh, you know, the inside jokes. And, and in fact, inside jokes are one of the things that kind of really raises spirits with crews. We learned this on the NDRS mission too that I did just a couple of months ago. and. Uh, you, you develop your own little language and that you all understand, and the little jokes are funny to you, but probably no one else, and it really helps crew around. How does MDRS, uh, I know you wrote a blog 
with some contrast between the two as far as the difference differences in the facilities and location. But uh, what was it like as you were commander at uh, MDRS? Yeah, that's right. After the the FMARS mission, um, I you know I didn't have any immediate plans to do anything else like this. And then the Mars Society announced that there was an opportunity to go to MDRS, and so I put in my application and. Lo and behold, I was selected, but not only was I selected, they, they told me they wanted me to, to lead one of the missions. And so naturally, I was was excited for that opportunity. And NDRS is a lot like FMARS. They're both from the Mars Society. That They were both formed primarily with the private money from this that advocacy group. And uh, they're, they're both uh, tuna cans, if you will. They're, they're these uh, short squat kind of cylinders. They're about eight meters in diameter by about seven meters tall, and they're they're sized that big because um, they could fit inside a, a Saturn V or another heavy lift rocket that you might envision. And uh, it's the sort of thing that might be carried to the moon or to Mars um, for the first habitats. And it has two main floors, and uh, the, the the lower level has a couple of airlocks where you go in and out and uh, EVA preparation room and, and science labs, and, as well as the, the bathroom and, and uh, engineering areas where you can work on, on equipment. And then upstairs is the main living area, where there's a kitchen and, a, and work tables and, and all the state rooms. And one nice thing about these habs is, is that each person has his own room. And uh, it's small, but it's, you know, it's cozy and it's your own. So you do have a place to retreat when you need to be alone. Yeah, I think that's a nice touch. That's that's important probably for missions like this. Yeah, but like I said, NDRS and FMARS are similar physically. They were both developed from similar plans. Uh, NDRS was built second. It was built about a year after FMARS. And so it has a few refinements that FMARS doesn't, but they're mostly superficial. But they're in different environments, of course. FMARS being in the Arctic uh, is, is a very isolated kind of place. Uh, NDRS, uh, the Mars Desert Research Station, is in uh, Utah, and it's in a very remote part of Utah, but it's um, only about five miles from this little town called Hanksville. So if you need to get something, you could go there. They have, they have one store, and, and you know, it's kind of, I think it has one stoplight, so it's a small little place. But it doesn't feel as isolated as that one because of that. I was reading about your mission, and uh, there was mentioning mention of it for the MDRS crew 89 that you were part of they were mentioning something about the weather how how did the weather actually affect your mission and the EVAs that you performed That's a good question at MDRS we had a lot of snow during our mission and we we hadn't really planned for that and we had to adjust our plans accordingly when we got there there was almost no snow on the ground it was you could see all the beautiful browns and reds of, of all the sedimentary rocks in the area it's quite a, a stunning place if anyone's ever been through utah and seen the the arches national park and bryce canyon and all those places this is similar to those um, but a day or two after we got there it started snowing and it snowed for, for several days and, and the snow was with us for pretty much the whole two-week mission and um, so we had to adjust, and so first we took some tentative uh, pedestrian EVAs to make sure we were confident walking on the snow, and then we did a couple of, of test uh, rover EVAs longer distance just to make sure we could handle the vehicles on the snow, and we even did a, um, 
we dedicated two EBAs to a rescue operations drill because we I was worried about well, what if someone slipped and fell on the rocks and, and needed to be brought back to the hab for medical attention. And so we we actually towed a sled behind the ATV and, and went and, and rescued someone who was pretending to be hurt. Uh, but once we got all that behind us, we were we felt pretty confident and we went ahead and struck out and we did as much work as we could. We couldn't go as far as we might have done otherwise. And I actually delayed my experiment in DRS, which was a, an active seismology experiment. Um, I delayed that to the end because I was wanting the snow to thin a little bit, and it did. By the, by the time we did it, in the last two days of the mission, the snow was, had, had melted enough that it, it didn't affect the results. But, uh, you know, weather is a problem, and it, I don't expect it to snow like that on Mars. But, you know, they have seen quite a bit of snow at the poles, so a polar mission could potentially have that problem. I saw on the MDRS that there was a, uh, one, of the, one of the sciences that was covered was astronomy. And I think, uh, was it MDRS, where there, you had to make a change from optical to radio? Yeah, we had an astronomer on our crew. His name is Mike Moran. And he had, had planned to do both optical and radio astronomy. Experiments and as it turns out, the optical telescope at NDRS was uh, in in repair and couldn't be used. It had it had been um, I think it had been damaged uh, the previous year and it hadn't come back yet from the manufacturer. And so unfortunately, that couldn't be utilized. And and the observatory he was going to use was, was the Musk Observatory, by the way, which was which was funded by Elon Musk. So instead, he, he did an experiment with the radio telescope array, which, which is also there. And that's a, a series of, of, uh, of towers, which are just passive radio receivers that um, receive the signals. And in, in our case, we were looking low on the horizon for, for Jupiter. And he was able to actually detect Jupiter and listen to its radio hum, um, which is kind of neat. I got to tell you one other thing. When you had the, uh, the man down simulation i kind of came in in the middle of that uh of that uh, a twitter exchange or two maybe and i didn't realize it was simulation and i thought oh gee that's terrible now they've got a member of the crew that's got a broken leg and this is really going to be a problem and of course shortly after that i saw that it was a sim <laughs> yeah we, we we tried to make it clear but you know i could see how that misunderstanding might crop up and I don't know if you saw it, but we, we made a YouTube video about that um, that scenario. And so if you go to our, our website, you, you can find it. And uh, we, um, in fact, I was quite proud of our NBRS crew's um, online presence. We we had a, a very nice website that that our information officer and journalist Kiri Wagstaff had, had set up. And we had a blog that we wrote on every day, and, and we posted maps from all of our EBAs. And, and you can look at the data on the Google Maps or Google Earth, um, and that's work that I did. And, um, and then we also linked to these videos that we made. So it was a very, I think, um, a nice public relations and, and outreach aspect of the mission. And, and one of the debates I had had prior to FMARS with, with um, Cheryl Bishop, who's a human a psychology and human factors researcher, was, um, do you think crews on missions like this will be allowed to and even be able to have direct access to social media and, and like blogs and Twitter and Facebook? And, and she seemed to think that it probably wouldn't be a good idea. 
it would most likely be filtered through um, the mission control and mission support. And, uh, and, and those of us on the crew said, well, we, we can see your point, but what we think by the time we're going to Mars, we'll be doing it directly. And, you know, as, we, as I'm sure you know, now they have direct internet on the ISS, and, and I don't think they're filtering those tweets before they go out. So, so maybe, maybe our strategy is, is going to be the winner. I think so. It seems to me that with part of the training that would be uh, part of a mission, that there would be some, uh, you know, PR-type training, you know, not necessarily rules on what to say or what not to say, but just general guidelines, you know, and how to, how to best communicate and, uh, and, and, and do well. And compliments to you and your crew because the amount of information that I saw posted in the blog was more than I could absorb, uh, you know, checking into it here and there. I missed so much that uh, I've got a bookmark to go back when I have time and take a look through more of it. Now, let's just say that there was enough money and we had the technology to go to Mars. Based on your experience, uh, how do you think we would do and do you think we'd be prepared or what would need to be fixed based on your training with FMARS and MDRS? Well, I think the biggest hurdle to get to Mars is funding, as you alluded to. And uh, so having the funding is really going to be the kicker. And, you know, for the last 40 years, Mars has been 10 years off. And everyone has always assumed that somehow the funding would present itself, and it never has. And the best estimates today are that we'll need around $100 billion, you know, give or take. And, you know, if you put that in perspective, it's not much money, actually, especially compared to, to bailouts and whatnot. But it's a matter of societal priorities. And, and I think, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously not high on, on society's uh, list right now for things to spend money on. But obviously, I, I hope we do. Um, and if we had the money, um, I think we could go now. In, in fact, or, or by now, it would take probably a 10-year effort of, of, uh, of concerted effort to, you know, to develop the vehicles to take us there. But we wouldn't necessarily need to rely upon um, you know, newer, faster propulsion technology. It'd be great to have that, um, but I don't think you have to. And you wouldn't necessarily have to do a lot of um, training or technology development, you know, say on the moon. I think that would actually be, be great and would improve um, the fidelity of, and, and confidence in your equipment, but probably not a requirement. So if you wanted to, you could probably cut some corners and do it in about 10 years. I think more, more likely it would be, be closer to 20 years. Um, I, I hope we do it. You know, I, I'm optimistic that, that maybe we'll see a, a big announcement soon saying, uh, you know, this, this new direction for NASA is going to have a goal after all, and it's going to be Mars, and, and there's something specific about it. And that would make me very happy. You know, whether it happens is another story, but um, we'll see. And uh, the, the biggest hurdle technically, though, um, I think is going to be keeping the crew alive and healthy for the journey itself. And we don't really have a good method for... Um, shielding the crew from radiation that, that doesn't weigh so much that it's going to be cost prohibitive. So uh, the radiation is an issue and living in microgravity for about, you know, nine months or so is, is a big, it's a big issue. Um, of course, people have done that on the, on the space station and we know with exercise um, you know, measures you can mitigate that somewhat, but 
Um, we don't know how someone is going to react to coming into a gravity field after being that long away and, and then, you know, immediately having to get to work and do their EVAs and all of their science. Um, you know, those are studies that need to happen and they need to happen soon and, and they can. Um, and that's work that can be done on the ISS, it can be done on, on suborbital flights, for example. Um, so, uh, you know, I hope that there, there is a kind of a renewed effort into that kind of work. Now, I think once we get to Mars, though, I think living and working on the surface um, is, is something that we, we've actually, I think, generated a pretty good body of knowledge about from, from all the analog work. Not, not only the Mars Society's work, but, but NASA's and ESA's and everyone else who's done it. And uh, there, there are a lot of good papers out there and books and uh, conferences and, and, and just people with expertise in that area. And you'll find no shortage of volunteers to go to Mars, I, I assure you. Um, you know, people with, with the desire and the, and the skills to do that. Speaking of which, if you could, would you go to Mars? Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. That's what I've wanted to do since I was a kid. Yeah. You couldn't stop me. Brian, you're saying that um, right now, if we had unlimited budget options, we could get there in a decade or two. But you're saying that the biggest problem that stands in our path is how to keep the crew alive on that long journey. Don't you think it's worth it until we do perfect a more advanced propulsion system to make sure that we have a better chance of doing that? Um, you know, I mean, it, maybe it should take us a month to get to Mars if we had something else better than a chemical rocket. You, you don't see the value in trying to wait to perfect that propulsion engine first? I, I, I'm actually very excited about some of the, the potential propulsion technologies coming down the pipe. And um, I, no, absolutely, we need to, to work on those. And they need to be a priority, I think. Um, so I, I applaud the um, administration's you know, uh, direction, a directive to NASA to, to focus on developing these new technologies. I think that's a great step. Um, but is it required to go to Mars? And, and, and my argument is that it's not required, that you can get there without it, and that perhaps the first you know, few missions wouldn't use it, and, and you know, the, the trailblazers would go there um, on, with conventional technology, and then, and then after that, you know, maybe 30 years down the road, you, you have this other technology perfected that you can get there in, in weeks instead of months, and, and, and then, you know, then that really opens the doors and the floodgates, so to speak, and, and more people could go, and more research could be done, and, and potentially more permanent presence could be could be established. And, and I think technology like that may be the enabling factor that'll that'll make uh, you know, more long-term presence possible. But um, but I don't think it's a necessary requirement because you know we, we do know how to live in space and keep people alive in space. Mm -hmm. uh, from the gravity point of view, and I think to me the big wild card is 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 the radiation. So yeah. If, yeah. if we can if we can figure that out, we'll be in good shape. And, and there are a lot of ideas, of course, for for shielding with with with, with um, water walls in the craft and with um, you know new materials um, and, and even gene therapies. Of course, that hasn't been developed that one, but um, so we'll have to see how that pans out. Brian, I've got a question. This is um, kind of looking to the future as we're, we're talking about now, but let's say that um, some folks hear this or, or maybe even some young people that are, that are heading into their university studies. Um, I know that you're working 
towards another degree while you're uh, working at the Tsunami Warning Center. And I've, I've seen mention of a space studies uh, master's program. And earlier, I think you mentioned the uh, ISU, the International Space University, and the University of North Dakota. I'm curious with the areas that they seem to cover, physical, life sciences, engineering, even policy, law, business, and management, why are all of those types of things important uh, for space studies? Because it really widens it out a lot more than than my impression of of what an astronaut would uh, would be would go for. Well, about twenty years ago, um, ISU International Space University and the University of North Dakota's space studies programs uh, came into existence. And um, so this was the late 80s, and it was in direct response to the Challenger disaster. And it was actually the, I think it was in fact the first Augustine Commission that that, um, that helped trigger the formation of these. And um, and they, they started off similar, in fact, same uh, board of directors in the beginning, and a lot of the same players, and, and they kind of diverged. Um, with with the ISU focusing on on this mobile kind of floating campus that moves every summer um, and then eventually it settled down into in, its master's location in, in France, Strasbourg, France, um, while keeping the, the floating summer program, which is what I did. Um, and the UND, of course, is in North Dakota and, and it's located in their School of Aerospace, um, which is actually one of the top schools for, for aviation in the country. Um, and, and the philosophy behind these was one of the issues that was brought up for the Challenger disaster was NASA has a culture problem, that that people had blinders on to some degree, that that um, you know maybe they were in some respect too specialized. And um, while, while you certainly have to have specialists, you also need people with a little perhaps wider perspective sometimes. And I think that was part of the motivation behind making the programs interdisciplinary was that even though you may be an engineer, you may be the best, um, you know, uh, say, uh, rocket engineer or whatever your specialty is, um, if you have some idea of the wider policy implications of what you're doing, like ITAR, for example, or 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 the um, you know the management approach to you know why your boss is telling you to do this this way, um, you know, it, it won't hurt <laughs> at a minimum. And um, so I think at least from that point of view, it's good. And, um, but these, these programs are not going to make you a specialist. They're not going to make you, uh, you know, an expert in, in anything, really. You're, you're just a generalist. And um, it appeals to a certain demographic, and, and I'm one of those people. I, I, I like to dabble in a lot of things. And, you know, when I was an undergraduate, I couldn't make up my mind, so, so I got three majors because, you know, I wanted to do it all. And, and I think, um, you know, this sort of program appeals to some people like that. And astronauts have to be jacks of all trades, um, particularly if you're on a, on a long duration remote mission like, like one to Mars. You have to be able to wear a lot of hats. You know, you mentioned someone's going to have to do the, the media and outreach, for example. Well, that'll be a role that someone plays. And, and the crew's going to have to, of course, do the science and be an expert in that, as well as being an expert in engineering systems. Um, and a good foundation for that is, I think, an interdisciplinary approach like this. Interesting. It's, there's a whole lot more to, to an, being an astronaut today than back when the program started. 
Uh, and speaking of being an astronaut, I know that's that's one of your life's ambitions. How do you see the future? What what do you think is going to happen? I know so much of it is tied up with with politics, but it seems like international cooperation could certainly help. I don't know what's going to happen in the future with with the um, with NASA's program, for example. But um, you know, I expect we'll have another announcement of opportunity within a few years. Maybe it might be as much as five years, but I'll certainly apply. And uh, in, in the meantime, um, you know, I'm doing everything I can to make my resume even better. And and uh, you know, I've done FMARS and NDRS, and I'm, I'm finishing the UND Space Studies Masters. And and uh, knock on wood, I'll finish my PhD by then too, hopefully, and, and finish my pilot's license if I can. But uh, the, I have some other exciting things coming down the pipe too. I can't talk about all of it, but um, well, one, of, one of them is uh, I'm, I'm working on the establishment of a couple of other Mars bases. Um, and we'll have to stay tuned for that. And uh, I'm working with a group of, of other people to um, get training to become a suborbital astronaut. Um, I don't know if you know about the NASTAR program in Pennsylvania, but um, they announced um, their first suborbital science uh, researchers opportunity uh, a few months ago, and uh, they cycled the first set of people through that. And I think in the next few years, we're going to see an explosion of, of this, um, these private suborbital uh, players. And, um, they're, and these people are going to be flying, and they're going to be doing um, science up there. There are a lot of university and, and other researchers who want to have their payloads flown. And maybe they don't have the money, they don't have the time, or for whatever reason, they can't do the experiment themselves. So who's going to do it? Hey, you can hire an astronaut. Hey, my, my blog's title comes in handy, Astronaut for Hire. So so the idea is is to get trained up in the next few years so that I'm ready by the time that those technologies are here. And, and hopefully I'll get to earn my, my uh, uh, space wings before, uh, before the next NASA, NASA opportunity. Okay, now if okay. people want more information about you and what you've been doing and your mission, uh, where can they go? Well, my blog is called astronautforhire.com, and you can go there and you can learn about what I'm doing, and, and you can learn about what I've done, and you can contact me. And of course, I'm on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and everywhere else. Um, my, my handle is Brian Shiro. That's B-R-I-N-S-H-I-R-O. No spaces. All right. Well, Brian, right. thank you very much for being on Talking Space. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. And once again, also thanking, thank you for joining us, Mark Raderman. It's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this since uh, before Brian went to Mars back in January. Me too. And thank you as well, Gina Herlihy. Oh, thank you. I learned quite a bit tonight. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.